Luke 18, 1 to 8, hear the word of the Lord. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on earth? Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's a city on the Pacific coast in another country that brings in more custom revenue, being a port city, than any other city in that country. But two-thirds of the residents live in poverty, and of the last four mayors of that city, all four have been in prison at some point or another because of corruption. Witnesses to crimes committed by uh, important and powerful people in another country, this country in Asia, they tend to have this experience. Sometime when they're out... They get rammed by a truck that has blacked out license plates. And so there are no more witnesses, and so these powerful people get off scot-free. In another country in Asia, there are still, after two years, 700,000 of a certain ethnic group that was uh, attempted to be extinguished in their own country. They had to flee to another country, and they continue to be languishing in a refugee camp there. While the Amazon burns, uh, politicians trade insults and accusations with each other. These are just some of the cheery uh, pieces of news that I read in my primary news source. I've told you that I have trouble figuring out where to get my news, and so I tend to read international news, not so much U.S. news. But these are the things that leave me depressed when I read them. And then I can go to websites like I've encouraged you to do, such as Voice of the Martyrs. And in that website, we find stories of Christians around the world that are imprisoned and beaten and exiled and excluded because of their faith in Jesus. And all of these stories, the world news and the news about persecuted Christians around the globe It leaves me down and it leaves me crying out saying, Lord, will things never be right? Will you ever put things right? And if you have any sensitivity at all, which I know that you do to to the injustices in the the world and the injustices around you, I'm sure you've had that, that same sort of experience. If you've ever read the Psalms, you found the psalmist often crying out and saying, Lord, what? How long, how long will you allow things to go on the way they're going on? 
we come to a parable today that doesn't answer all of the questions we might have about such injustices, but it does point us in the direction in which we should go if we are believers in Jesus Christ in the face of the injustices, particularly the injustices committed against the vulnerable, against the other believers as well. He told this parable. Now, we're jumping around and looking at different parables, but it's always important to to back up a little bit and see where this parable comes. And this parable comes right after a discussion that Jesus had first with the Pharisees. And you'll remember that the Pharisees, that was a group, uh, a uh, an order of the Jews, and it was a particularly strict order of the Jews, careful about obeying the law of God, and they were expecting the coming of the kingdom. And if you go back to chapter 17, In Luke, in verse 20, it says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. So the context here is this discussion about what? About the timing of the coming of the kingdom of God. So we'll get back to the parable in a bit, but let's look a little bit about what Jesus says in chapter 17 about the coming of the kingdom. The first thing he says to them was that, The coming of the kingdom would not come in a way that was obvious, not in the way that they were expecting. Look at verse 20. Jesus said, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You see, they were expecting the kingdom. And they were expecting certain signs and certain evidence of the kingdom. And Jesus says, those things that you are looking for, you're not going to see. You're not going to have somebody be able to say, look at that and look at that. These are obvious signs that the kingdom is coming. And he says somewhat cryptically, he says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he leaves it at that. Now, then he goes on to talk to his disciples And he tells his disciples, if you look at verse 22, it says he turns to his disciples, but apparently the Pharisees were still there listening, and he tells them some things about the coming of the kingdom. The first thing he says is this, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Now, a couple of things there. One is, the coming of the kingdom, and what he calls the days of the Son of Man, that's the same event. So the coming of the kingdom... The days of the Son of Man, that's, that's the same thing. But he says to his disciples, there will be a delay. There will be a delay. You will be looking for these days. You will be longing for these days, but they won't be here yet. So remember this. There is delay involved, a delay built in, and we saw this in the parable last week as well with the parable of the talents, a delay in the return of the Master. And then he goes on. And he says in verse 23 that there will be people that will try to alarm you and say that it's already happened or it's coming right now. They will say to you, look there or look here. He says, do not go out or follow them. Then he says, when it happens, you won't need anybody to tell you, oh, look over there. Because when it happens, it will be so clear and so obvious that everybody will know. Verse 24, As the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side of the to the other, so will be the Son of Man in His day. And then he says in verse 25, But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. 
Then he goes on and talks about that there will be, it will be like in the time of Noah, in the time of Lot, when there was a suddenness to his coming. But this verse 25 jumps out at us. Because sprinkled through the Gospels, we have Jesus at first hinting and then declaring openly something that apparently nobody was prepared to hear. And that was that the Son of Man, the Christ, the Messiah, was coming and had come, but before he he completed his work, he would suffer and be rejected, and killed. And he he told this about halfway through the Gospel. He told this to his disciples, and they didn't get it. And not only did they not get it, but they didn't like it. And Peter said, never, Lord, that will never happen to you. But these were, were pious Jews that were expecting the kingdom. And they knew their Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and they knew that a conquering king was coming. And that was welcome news to them because they were a vassal state dominated by the Romans at that time. And so they read their scriptures and they knew that a conquering king was coming. But they also knew the prophecies of Isaiah that said that there was the servant of the Lord who was coming. And the servant of the Lord would suffer and he would bear the sins of many But even after bearing the sins of many and being extinguished himself, he would see life and he would see days and he would see his posterity. So they knew about the coming conquering king and they latched onto that hope. And they knew about the suffering servant. But what they weren't able to do was to put these two together in the same person. And that's why when Jesus would talk about the Christ, the Son of Man, the conquering king going to be rejected and suffer and die and rise again on the third day. It was, it was difficult to hear because they were not able to put these two things together. A Messiah that's rejected by his own people? A Messiah that, that dies? What kind of a Messiah is that? Well, this is the the hiddenness of the kingdom. And Jesus said to them, the Pharisees once again, it won't come in ways that are obvious to you. The kingdom is in your midst. Why was the kingdom in their midst? Because Jesus was in their midst. The king was in their midst. The one who was the suffering servant was in their midst. That's the message of the good news. Yes, the conquering king has come, but... Ironically, surprisingly, the the conquering king doesn't come to kill. The conquering king comes to be killed. But that's the way he conquers. By because in his death he he atones for, he pays for, he covers over the sins of those who trust in him. And then, three days later, he conquers over the power of death. So yes, the conquering king and the suffering servant are one and the same. That's the context. We haven't gotten to the parable yet. But that's the context. And then he tells the parable. Now, the parable is short. And it has two main characters. It's in verses 2 to 5 of uh, chapter 18 of Luke. We have the judge, who is a powerful 
man, and then we have the widow, who is a powerless woman. And so we, we start this parable with this, this imbalance of power from the beginning. And the judge is described, not flatteringly, as one who had no regard for God, and he had no regard for humans either. He didn't care about God, and he didn't care about humans. And that was not just an insult. That was how he identified himself. That's how he's described in verse 2. It says, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And then if you look at verse 4, when he's thinking to himself, how does he describe himself? He says, Though I neither fear God nor respect man. So the description is right on. He was without regard for God, without regard for humans. And then there was this widow. This widow repeatedly brought her case before the judge. And what we can imagine, we don't have details about her case, but what we can imagine is this. Somebody that's powerful was taking advantage of her. And so she had a legal claim. She was asking for redress. She was asking for legal protection. She was asking for vindication against this powerful person who was taking advantage of her because she was so powerless. And she was going to the judge and saying, vindicate me. Give me justice before my adversary. And the assumption of this parable is that her case was legitimate. That she had a legitimate claim to vindication and to justice. Now, the man, the judge, he refused her for a time. It says in verse 3, There was this widow in that city kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Verse 4. For a while, and apparently a long while, for a while he refused. Why did he refuse? Well, he didn't care about God. He didn't really care about law. And he didn't care about her. Because she was what? A human. And he didn't care about humans. Now, there may have been something going on behind the scenes, if we can imagine a situation of a powerful person in the city taking advantage of the powerless. The powerful person has the opportunity of doing things under the table uh, to pervert justice. It doesn't say that, but we know that that kind of thing happens all the time. But however that may be, he would not grant her justice. But then he reasoned with himself, finally. And he said that he would do it, but notice that the reason that he did it was completely self-serving. It was not concerned about God. It was not concerned about her. It was only concerned about himself. But this was his reasoning. He says, I don't fear God. I don't respect humans. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. She was a nuisance. And he wanted to be rid of the nuisance. So he said, that was the first reason. Because she keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice. But there was a second reason, and that is, he says, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now this verb, to beat down, 
appears only twice in the New Testament, here in 1 Corinthians 9-7, where Paul uses it figuratively about how he beats his own body, not physically, but he, he disciplines his own body as an athlete. He, and it's an athletic word. It means to punch under the eye. And so there are some interpreters that take this literally, and they, they think that this powerful man was afraid that this powerless woman would eventually get so desperate that she would sock him in the eye. (laughs) And if so, there's a little bit of humor in this parable. But that's not likely. It's more likely that, just like in Paul's case, this is a figurative speech. That, That she would somehow cause him, as it were, to lose face. Uh, by being embarrassed somehow in the society, uh, oh, that's the judge that keeps getting pestered by this, this widow woman. That's the judge that can't hold his own against this widow lady. And so he says, okay, so that doesn't happen. She's bothering me, and I don't want to get this, this, this public black eye from this woman. I, I'll grant her justice. I'll grant her justice. Now, That's the story. What are the lessons of the story? Now, we have seen sometimes that Jesus just tells parables and he doesn't apply them. He doesn't interpret them. And we have to figure them out with the tools that he has given us in the ones that he has interpreted. And sometimes the gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, gives us some clues. Now, Luke is very helpful here. Because Luke gives his editorial comment before we get to the story. And that's in verse 1. Luke tells us, And he, that is Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So now we don't have to, to search for, Why did Jesus tell this parable? Luke told us. Why? to tell us, to encourage us, that we ought always to pray and not to lose heart. This instruction sounds similar to something that Paul said in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. He said, pray without ceasing. But that's not exactly the same idea here. It's similar, but it's not exactly the same idea. Paul was saying, pray continuously. But here, Luke is saying that he gave this parable to teach us to pray continually. So what Paul was saying is pray all the time during your day. And this parable is teaching us rather, not rather, in addition to pray, not only to pray all the time, but to pray during all times, all the times of history, all the times of our life, to continue in prayer during our whole lifetime and during the whole lifetime of the church. Uh, That is, followers of Christ throughout their whole life should keep on praying and not give up. Particularly, we should keep on praying In this context, even though it looks like Jesus is taking a long time, either taking a long time with the injustices that we, or more likely someone else, is suffering, or taking a long time in wrapping this whole thing up and in in ridding the world of injustice once 
and for all. Especially when it seems like he's delaying. Especially when it seems like he's taking too long and we can't hold on much longer. That in those times, this parable comes into play. It teaches us to continue to pray and not to lose heart. This is a a good measure of the health of the church at any time in history. The church in general or any individual congregation, this is a good test that we should apply to ourselves and to the church. Are we praying? Are we praying? There's a, there's a barometer for the health of the church. Are we taking into account this parable? No matter how long Jesus delays, will we continue to be a people of continuous and continual prayer? Now, that's the first lesson. Very clear. Luke spells it out for us. Keep praying and don't lose heart. But also, Jesus, in the the prayer itself, applied it to us. Verse 6, And the Lord, and by the way, the Lord is Jesus. Luke often calls Him the Lord, and also the Son of Man. The Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Now, isn't that curious? (laughs) That Jesus would send us to the unrighteous judge to learn a lesson? This, This is fascinating. That Jesus say, listen to what the judge says. What is it about the ju- what the judge said that he wants us to hear? What does the judge finally say in verse 5? I will give her justice. That's the part he wants us to listen to. I will give her justice. So listen to what the unjust judge says. What does he say? I will give her justice. And then he makes the application. And this is, this is surprising. He compares God to the unjust judge. He says, And will not God give justice to the elect, verse 7, And will not God give justice to the elect who cry to Him day and night? Now wait a minute. In this parable, the one who is playing the role, as it were, of God, the one who represents God, is the unjust judge? How does that work? Well, this is a an argument of how much more. This is not saying God is like the unjust judge in every regard. Rather, He's very unlike Him. But the result is the same, and the argument is how much more. Think about this. It goes like this. If, if the unjust judge, who had no regard for God, no regard for humans, no regard for the law... If the unjust judge, who served only his own interests, gave justice to the woman because she cried out day and night, how much more will God, who is just and righteous and merciful and abounding in loving kindness, how much more will He grant justice to His elect, to the ones He loves, to the ones He has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, to the ones for whom He sent His own Son that He might die for them, to the ones to whom He gives His Holy Spirit. How much more will God grant justice to His own? You see how the argument works? 
to encourage us that if, if the unjust judge gave justice to the widow, how much more will he give justice to us who cry out to him day and night? Now, the last line of verse 7 is translated here, Will he delay long over them? And I found at least ten different interpretations about what this phrase means. Um, and this is one of the most difficult verses to translate, not translate, but to interpret in, in Luke. However, I think this version really got it right because it fits very well with the answer in verse 8. Let's see how this reads. Verse 7, rhetorical question, And will not God give justice to His elect who cry out to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? And then the answer comes. Verse 8, I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. So that flows very well. Will He delay long over them? I tell you, rather, that He will give justice to them speedily. But now we have another difficulty of translation because this word speedily, this kind of cuts the difference of the possibilities here. It could mean soon. He will give justice to them very, very soon. Or it could mean that He will give justice to them quickly when it happens. Suddenly when it happens. And they sort of uh, cut the difference here and they said He will give justice to them speedily. Not really deciding whether that's soon or whether that is simply speedily when it happens. But thinking about the context, let's try to figure this out in context. Thinking about the context, Jesus told them that the kingdom was coming, but that they would long for it and it would delay for a time. And in the parable itself, are they getting, is the woman getting justice right away at her first petition? No. There's, there's a delay built into the parable. And when he applies it, he says that the elect are calling out to God, what? Once? No. Continually, and they're crying out to Him day and night. And so it looks like that this is saying, not necessarily that it will be soon, particularly not soon enough for us, not soon enough for those who are suffering. It's, it's never soon enough, is it? For those who are suffering injustices. But when it comes... It will come surely, and it will come swiftly, and it will come speedily. It will come, and it will certainly come. Now, what we can say then, in answer to the the original depressing relation of, of Christian suffering around the world, there will certainly be vindication for Christians who suffer unjustly. That's what the parable tells us that we should always pray and not give up, and there will certainly be justice. This helps us. Actually, there are two things that help us here. Luke said we're to pray continually and not lose what? Not lose heart. And there are two reasons not to lose heart here. One is because, yes, justice will eventually come. Yes, God will eventually make all things right. But there's another thing, and Luke doesn't bring that out, but the New Testament brings this out. Jesus brings it out. Paul brings it out very clearly. And that's this. Think about Jesus' own career. 
And think about what He told us had to happen before, before He entered into His own glory. What had to happen for Him? He had to be rejected. And He had to suffer many things to the point of death. And so this puts Christian suffering in context, doesn't it? Christ suffered for us. And we, if we suffer unjustly, we are getting to share in a little taste of what the Savior has already done for us by suffering unjustly, even as He did. Now, the last question is seemingly out of the blue. And, of course, scholars debate whether this was original because it seems so surprising here. That's what scholars do. Um, but actually, this brings it all together. This really brings out what this parable is all about. Jesus says here, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? That seems to be a, a, a strange question to end. He'd already ended on the climax, hadn't He? What's the question? Will, will God's people eventually be vindicated? Will He hear their cries? And the answer is yes. But then he says, when the Son of Man comes, will there be any faith on earth? What's the connection here? What's going on? Well, this question reminds us of what this parable is all about. It's focused on Jesus' return. And so he begins to be 1720 by talking about his return, and he ends here talking about his return. So it brings us back to that. But it also asks the question about whether we're going to do what that widow did. Whether we will continue in faith until Jesus comes back, no matter how long He takes. And it also points us to the the intimate link between prayer and faith. The parable wasn't about faith explicitly. The parable was about what? Prayer. But then at the end of it he says, but when the Son of Man comes, will there be faith left on earth? And the answer to that question, my friends, is in the hands of every generation of Christians. We're the ones who need to answer that question. At the end, he he throws the the ball back into our court. And He asks us that question. When the Son of Man comes, will there be faith on earth? That depends on us if we in our generation persevere in faith. And the next generation does the same thing. And the next generation does the same thing. Then when Jesus comes back, He will find faith on earth. But if any generation drops the ball and the faith is extinguished, then when He comes back, no faith on earth. How do we keep the faith, as it were? Well, the parable tells us. And this gets very, very practical. We keep the faith by praying. Now, now think about how prayer and faith operate. They're in a, a symbiotic relationship. They, they depend on each other. They build each other up. And their absence also tears each other down. Why would anybody pray to God? What does prayer presuppose? Well, it presupposes that we believe in God. 
So, so prayer comes out of faith. But then, what does faith, what does prayer do to faith? Faith is sustained by prayer. So faith gives birth to prayer, and faith is sustained by prayer. So if you want to keep praying, keep believing. And if you want to keep believing, keep praying. And it works the other side of that as well. There's some people that stop praying, and I've talked to these people. They say, I no longer pray because I no longer believe. And that is perhaps an intellectual thing. It's certainly a spiritual thing. They, they no longer believe. And so, of course, it wouldn't make sense for them to continue to pray if they no longer to believe, believe in a God to whom to pray. But I have found many others who have stopped believing because they stopped praying. You see, they didn't start with intellectual doubts. They weren't, weren't, asking questions about whether God exists or whether Jesus is His Son. No. They just they just got out of the habit. They just got out of the habit of crying out to God. And so in their lives, He might as well not have existed. And then lo and behold, after living that way for a time, guess what? For them, He doesn't exist anymore. So if you want to keep keep praying, keep on believing, but if you want to keep believing, keep on praying. I remember a time when I was a young pastor in the first pastorate, and I was quite naive. I wasn't even that old in the faith. And less than a decade in the faith, and I was now an ordained pastor. In, in the church. And I was in my first pastorate as an associate pastor and, and I had no idea things could be so messy and things could be so difficult. And this church wasn't a particularly difficult church. It was a great church. But, but I was, I was naive and I was idealistic and I, I was taken aback by, by the complexities in people's lives and the difficulties and the, and the effects of sin, even in the lives of Christians. And I entered into a period of, of doubting. And that might be a surprise to you that, that pastors have periods of doubt, but it ought not to surprise you. Because pastors are believers after all. And as I was in this, this, this new pastorate and, and struggling with questions of faith, I got to spend some time with a friend of mine. He's a pastor as well. And he has uh, some pretty impressive academic credentials. He graduated from Duke University, and then he got a couple of master's degrees, and then he topped it off by getting a Ph.D. from Cambridge University. Pretty impressive. And I was opening my heart to him and talking about these doubts. And let me tell you what this brilliant friend of mine said. He said, um, Keep reading your Bible. Keep praying. Keep going to church. Because that's how God builds faith. You see, he didn't enter into some grand defense of the faith. He told me how to sustain faith. Keep reading your Bible. 
Keep praying. Keep being among God's people. Because what do God's people do? They read their Bibles. And they pray. And we encourage each other in our faith. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? He will. If we just keep doing what Christians do by being in His Word, by being in prayer. Last week we heard a very simple instruction for those of you who are here from the parable of the talents. Do you remember what it was? Just do something. And now we hear another very simple instruction. Just keep praying. Christian life's pretty simple, folks. And if we put these two parables together, it gives us a summary, doesn't it? We pray and we work. He says, keep crying out and keep going out. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for Jesus, the conquering King, the suffering servant, who suffered injustice, that we might have life before You, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that You might bring us to God Yourself through Him. I pray for all of us here, if we've heard this good news about Jesus dying for sinners, that we would believe in Jesus, and so be forgiven for our sins and enter into this kingdom that Jesus brought. And I pray for all of us, that we would have faith, and that we would keep the faith, and therefore that we would cry out day and night through all of our lives until Jesus comes again. We pray for Your church, this piece of Your church and Your church in general, that we, Your people, would cry out day and night, knowing that Christ suffered injustice, and that Christ will one day make all things right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.